How's everybody doing? Great. How many Grand Valley students graduated yesterday? Congratulations. Good job finishing well. If you didn't finish so well, I don't know what to tell you. You're done. You're done. That's what I'll tell you. You're done. You don't have to worry about it anymore. That's awesome. I love hearing the story of what God's doing here uh, through Crossroads at Stocking and in this neighborhood. I am actively involved in this neighborhood. I, my name's Ryan. I'm a part of the Bridge Street House of Prayer ministry that's been uh, working and ministering here in the west side of Grand Rapids for about 11 years now. And so I love the ways that Crossroads has represented God so well in this neighborhood. And I love hearing what Crossroads is doing over at Stocking, a place that so desperately needs the, the shalom of the kingdom of God and, and the fruit that's happening there. Uh, what Crossroads is doing there, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of different urban ministry type of conversations. That's, my, that's what I do. And uh, I can tell you that what Crossroads is doing at Stocking is unheard of, essentially, in the urban ministry world. That a church, on its own dime, without anything that we're getting back from it, uh, is putting a staff member in the schools is incredible. I think it is such an incredible display of the character of God to our neighborhood. So I love being a part of that. I love when we get to highlight those kind of things. I wish we could highlight them more. If you are new here this morning, I want to welcome you. I always have kind of a soft spot in my heart for the new folks at this church. I know this can be maybe a bit of an intimidating place if you're new here trying to find your place. Maybe you kind of feel like that high school girlfriend at a family reunion. You know, like, got the crazy uncle sitting next to you. Like, who's this guy? You know? Uh, I would love to invite you to engage in some of these opportunities that you heard about to help make, there, there's some ways that you can make this church smaller, uh, to, to feel smaller. And some of these opportunities that you heard about are some great opportunities with the family meals or volunteer opportunities or come celebrate with Jeremiah and the stocking crew or the men's breakfast. I want to invite you to engage in some of those things that will really help this church uh, feel a lot smaller and I really hope that you do find a home here. That you find a, I think what you'll find is that if you, if you step in a little bit, you're going to find some people that love the Lord, are just trying to figure this thing out, and are going to be maybe not as intimidating as it initially appears. If, uh, if you've been coming for a little while and you're thinking, well, maybe this just isn't my home, um, I don't invite you to still come and talk to somebody here, and we'll help you get connected. We've got relationships with other churches in the area that we would love to be able to get you connected with and maybe help you find a place that, that you, can, you can find home. We just um, have a desire to get people connected to local church. So welcome to Crossroads. I hope you feel welcome. If you are not new here, would you go out of your way this morning and maybe find somebody that looks like they're new and welcome them and shake a hand and make them feel welcome. Can we do that? Can we be the welcoming committee here at Crossroads? That would be awesome. We are starting a series. A couple of weeks ago, we started a series on the life of David. So this is a series that's going to bring us through the summer, and we're going to journey through David's life for the next 14 weeks or so. And this week is going to be uh, one of two parts on this story of David and Goliath one of the most popular stories in the Bible. 
Uh, inevitably, even if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, inevitably you've heard of this story of David and Goliath. And what I want to do to start us out this morning is to lay a little bit of foundation. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17, which uh, I heard this morning could be on page 202 or 221. It may be somewhere around there in your Bible. Uh, We're going to get there in a little while. But I want to lay some framework and some foundation first, because I think one of the dangers when we look at stories like David and Goliath, and we, we've read these stories since we're kids, and we take them as these one-off stories. I think the danger is that these kind of stories get reduced to kind of moral principles. They get reduced to moral principles or uh, lessons for leadership, things like that, things that we can certainly draw out of them. But I think when we forget where we are in the story and how this all eventually points us to this man named Jesus, we start to lose some of what I think is supposed to be happening here in the story. So I want to help us with that framework a little bit this morning and revisit the journey of Israel that's led us up to this point. See, this guy named David that we're studying over the summer is a king of this this nation called Israel that many of us have heard about. And Israel has its origins all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 with this man named Abraham. God meets this man named Abraham. We don't know much about Abraham before we meet him in Genesis chapter 12. But God meets this man named Abraham, and he calls him out from his family and his land, and he makes him a couple of promises. And he says, I'm going to be your God. And then he says, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. From you is going to come uh, a line that's going to become a great nation. And and I'm going to give this nation some land. So he promises I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to give you a promised land. And then God said, but God says this, for what purpose? In Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham and the covenant is this. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all nations. I think that's something that we need to keep in mind when we track the journey of Israel through the Old Testament, is that this is always God's chosen people, but chosen identity of Israel as a people, God's chosen people, but chosen for what? Chosen to represent God to the nations. That's God's intention in the covenant with Abraham and his intentions for Israel. Now you follow this through. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. God gives Jacob a new name, Israel. Jacob is Israel. Jacob has 12 sons. These 12 sons become the tribes of Israel that we know of today. You follow this through and Israel uh, journeys into the, the, the desert out of Egypt. And... Um, Again, again, God makes a promise with Israel. And he says, I promise to be your God. I promise to provide for you. I promise to protect you. I promise to guide you. And then God just asks for uh, some simple things in return. He says, "Um, here's what I want from you is I want you to just trust me. 
I want you to trust me. I want you to love me. I want you to obey me. That's all that I ask is that you would love me and trust me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and then I will be your God and I will do these things for you. What we find in the story is that very quickly we find out that Israel is completely unable to trust God. As a matter of fact, Numbers chapter 13 Israel has just kind of come out of Egypt. They spent a little bit of time in the desert going to this promised land. They're just about to go into the promised land. And Moses, who is the leader of Israel at that time, sends these 12 spies into the promised land, this land that God had promised Abraham. And he sends these 12 spies in to spy out the land and see what kind of land it is. And what they find there, they spend 40 days there. And what they find there is amazing and terrifying. They find these grapes that are like the size of a a human head. Uh, But then they find these giants. It says that the sons of Anak are there, these these Nephilim, these, these men of renown, these ancient men of renown, these giants in the land. And the spies come back after 40 days, and they're terrified. And they say to Moses, they say, there's no way we can do this. Why have you brought us out here? And they start grumbling and complaining. And they say, take us back to Egypt. We can't defeat this enemy. And so you find that already Israel is starting to doubt God. And then there's these two guys, uh, Joshua and Caleb, who say, no, no, no. God promised us this land. And he will provide. He will protect. We can do it. But the Israel, rather than trusting God, they give in to their fear and they grumble against God. And it's at this point that God says, okay, you guys aren't going into the promised land. You're going to go wander through the desert for 40 years until your descendants can come up and they'll go into the promised land. So what you find is that Moses, after 40 years, Moses is replaced by this guy named Joshua. Joshua then leads Israel uh, into the promised land, and they start to inherit this land that God had promised them. But even in this, uh, after, after God shows his faithfulness through bringing them across the, the Jordan River and defeating Jericho and defeating their enemies and showing himself faithful over and over, you get these, uh, these hints that Israel starts getting weary and they, they just want to settle down and they don't fully trust God. At the end of Joshua's life, before he's about to, uh, to die, he says to Israel, he says, now Israel, I'm about to go, but Israel, I want you to continue to serve God. Joshua says in Joshua chapter 24, serve the Lord and put away the idols that your forefathers served uh, across the river. And then he says, but if you find this undesirable, If it's undesirable for you to serve the Lord, then choose for yourself whom you will serve, whether it be the idols of your forefathers or whether it be the gods of the Amalekites and the nations you're about to go and that you're surrounded by. But, and it's in this context that Joshua says, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. To which Israel replies, Joshua, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord with our whole heart. We won't fall into idolatry. We will be a people that serve the Lord. This is at the very end of the book of Joshua. 
which brings us into the book of Judges, and you find out that very quickly this thing spirals out of control, and Israel very quickly rebels against God, doesn't trust God, and because of the rebellion and their mistrust that God has to bring them into judgment, and he brings these, uh, these enemy armies to punish them, always for the purpose of bringing them to repentance, so that God can restore them. And he brings them judges in the process to call them back into repentance and lead them back to God. So throughout the book of Judges, we find ourselves in this cycle of Israel uh, wavering between obedience, disobedience, rebellion, judgment, repentance. Then they obey for a little while. They fall back into rebellion and disobedience. God has to judge them, sends these warring enemies to conquer them. Israel repents and God restores them. They find themselves in this vicious cycle for generations. One of the the enemies that God sends, one of the key tools that God uses to test Israel's trust in God, as well as to bring judgment on Israel is the Philistines. You see this most significantly in Samson's life. Samson's always warring against the Philistines. By the time of the end of the judges, it says that Israel has no king over them, and everybody does as they see fit. We get this picture of a nation who has completely fallen into wickedness and idolatry. Uh, By the end of the the judges, we get into Samuel's life, and Samuel's the lead, the final, essentially the final judge, the first prophet of Israel. And Israel comes to Samuel, and essentially they say, "We're tired of this. We're tired of this cycle that we're in. We're tired tired of this cycle of of punishment and and repentance, and we just want to be like everybody else. So, would you give us a king that would make us like everybody else?" You see this in the beginning of 1 Samuel. Now what we need to understand is Israel asking for a king in itself is not rebellious. That's, the problem is not that Israel wants a king per se. As a matter of fact, when you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, this is before Israel is forced to wander through the desert and God is setting these rules and these boundaries of what it means for them to be obedient and to follow God and to represent God to the nations, uh, God in Deuteronomy chapter 17 says, when you go into the promised land and the people ask you for a king, that's okay. And here's what that king is supposed to be like. It's a, it's a king that's supposed to be humble. It's a king that's supposed to be committed to the word of God. It's a king that's not supposed to amass a lot of wealth Essentially what God is saying, it's okay that you have a leader over you, but that leader is meant to point you to God so that you can fulfill your identity in showing the nations what God is like. That has always been Israel's identity. And the fact that they want a leader, Israel has had a leader over them from the very beginning, right? Moses, Joshua, the judges, Samuel, They've always had a leader, so the fact that they want a leader isn't the problem. As a matter of fact, what God says to Samuel in the beginning of 1 Samuel is the problem is not that they want a leader. The problem is is that they no longer want me. They no longer want God to be in the center. 
They no longer want to be committed to the glory of God in the nations. They no longer want to be set apart. They just want to settle down and assimilate into the other nations. And that's the problem. And so God sends them this king named Saul. And we, we learned a little bit about Saul last week. Saul was this uh, man who was completely incompetent, who was crippled. He looked like a king. He was a head taller than everybody else. He looked like he had strength. But when push came to shove, Paul or Saul was riddled with incompetency, with fear, with doubt, with pride. And when faced with fear or challenge or impossible circumstances, rather than running to God and trusting God, he runs to everything else in this world. And it's as if God says, I'm going to give you a king, but I'm going to show you through this king what life is like when you put your trust in man and not in God. And you find that very quickly, God is actually grieved that he made Saul king And he says, I'm going to strip the kingdom away from Saul, and I'm going to give it to another person. And it's at this point that Saul comes in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, finds David, and anoints him. At the end of uh, 1 Samuel 16, we read this. uh, After God has rejected Saul, Samuel goes and finds David. He says, and so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. uh, Samuel anoints David, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him in power. Hold on to that. That's going to be important in about 20 minutes. Maybe 30, maybe 40. We'll see. It's crossroads. You never know. And it's a second service, so we don't have people coming in after this. So, <clears throat> I want to pick up this. So, so that's where we are. That's the journey thus far. That's what brings us up to what we're going to read this morning. So I want to read for us from 1 Samuel chapter 17. One fair warning. We're going to read a good chunk of scripture here this morning. So I'm going to read from uh, 1 Samuel 17. Starting in verse 1, I'm going to read all the way through verse 37. If you would like, you may stand with me for the reading of God's Word. First Samuel 17, in verse 1, let me pray for us first. God, I pray uh, that you would, uh, according to your promise, that you would send your Holy Spirit here. We know that your Spirit is here. Uh, but I pray that your spirit would, uh, would be present with us and do exactly what you promised your spirit would do and guide us into all truth. Remind us the things that you have taught us. Reveal yourself through the pages of Scripture this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For Samuel 17, in verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. And you said, oh, I see where we are. <laughs> Saul and the Israelites assembled at the camp in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, and the valley was between them. A champion named Goliath 
who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's about 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's about 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out, of the li- come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are not you servants of Saul? Remember that. Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your, su- your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you'll become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David, he went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, interesting, the same amount of time the spies were in Israel, or, uh, the promised land the first time. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and take these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are are, and bring back some assurance from them. They were with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies. He ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. As he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw this man, They all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for that man. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the man, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. What have I done? David asked. Can't I even speak? 
Then he turned away to somebody else and brought up the same matter. And the man answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go fight this Philistine. You are only a boy. And he has been fighting. He has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried it, and then when it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And then when it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Take a deep breath and have a seat. We made it. Now, when we read this text, there's a couple of interesting things that I notice. There are some stark contrasts that are being drawn throughout this text. And one of the stark contrasts that we see at the very beginning is the contrast between Israel and the Philistines. What do I mean by that? We've got to ask a little bit, who are these Philistines? What do we know about the Philistines? Well, we know uh, a couple of things from the text. We know that the Philistines, early on, if you read, uh, are, it's not a, a nation, a single nation, but rather it's a coalition of nations. We read this earlier in the Torah, where it's this coalition of five different cities or nations, all headed by five different kings or five different leaders. So it's this coalition of, of nations that have come together in an alliance. We also know uh, that, that, is, that, that the Philistines have played a significant role in God's judgment against Israel. Now, his, uh, historians and, and scholars will also tell us that these Philistines are, because of where they're located, they're located uh, right on the brink of the sea, right on the coast, on some major trade routes. And what this did for the Philistines, for this people group, is it brought in a lot of traffic. And in with that traffic were traders, and in with that traffic were a lot of different religions, and the result was a people, this coalition, that was very wealthy because of the trade and the taxes that came in, very comfortable because of their position on the sea, a people that was uh, very assimilated into a lot of different religions. So there's a, a variety of different religions going on. This is the Philistines. We also can read from the text that they are a powerhouse. They're warmongers. They love picking fights with people. And not only are they warmongers, but they are a powerful nation. You see this evidenced by Goliath's armor. A well-armored man that represents the army. Not only well-armored, but technologically advanced. You see that Saul has a uh, an iron spearhead. So they're advanced in the, iron, in the use of iron beyond the use of, of, of bronze. So you get this picture of this, 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 this uh, powerful, well-armed army that represents a people 
that has a variety of religions, that's very comfortable, that's very wealthy, that's very powerful and technologically advanced. Now compare this with Israel at this time. It's interesting if you read just a couple of chapters before this, there's this really uh, interesting thing when um, it says that the Philistines have actually stripped the Israelites of all of their weapons. It says that in chapter 13 that not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel. And then you keep going on in chapter 13. It says, so so that on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul or Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. So what we have here is we've got on one hill, we've got this powerhouse of an army that's well-armed and technologically advanced. And on the other hill, we've got the Israelites who don't even have a sword. Uh, They don't even have a blacksmith to make a sword. On one hill, we've got a hero. We've got Goliath. We've got a giant, which you should be asking at this point, where's Israel's hero? Where's Where's the warrior of Israel? And it should be Saul, right? And you've got to ask, where's Saul? Well, when you read in the story, it's evident that Saul is here, but he's not where he's supposed to be. He's not taking the role that he's supposed to take. It appears that Saul is actually the, the only man in Israel with a sword is hiding behind his soldiers who are unarmed. So you see this stark difference between the Philistines and Israel. And in the middle of this, Goliath asks, the Israelites, a very compelling question. It says, why do you come out to the battle line, servants of Saul? Are you not the servants of Saul? I find this to be a very compelling question. Because here we have the Israelites who are meant to be the servants of the living God. Who their, their purpose is to go out and to represent God to the nations, to be known as the people of God who serve God, and yet now they are known as the servants of Saul. I think what's going on here in uh, this, this scene that's playing before, him, before us is an identity crisis in Israel. That Israel has an identity crisis. That they're supposed to be the servants of the, the most high living God. They're supposed to be the people that trust this God to provide for them, to protect them, to guide them, and to display this God to the nations. And instead, now they are servants of this man Saul, like him. It's an insecurity, and they have become just like him. And it's in the midst of this identity crisis where Israel has lost their identity and they're waiting for their hero to arrive that we meet David. Well, well, Israel, well, well, the Philistines have this giant. We get introduced to this man named David. And what we find out about this man named David, well, we just found out in chapter 16 that he's the youngest and so overlooked in his family that he's not even invited to the party when Samuel comes to anoint the king. And then we find out that 
David uh, isn't even invited into the battle. Instead, he's relegated to continue to serve the sheep. So you, again, you have this stark contrast between the hero of the Philistines and David, this lowly shepherd boy. But it's interesting in this story, we find out a couple of key things about David's character and David's heart. Because when David comes and he hears this man Goliath taunting, what is his, uh, what is his question? It is this, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now what is David saying here? I think another thing that's helpful to understand is that in this day when two uh, armies would come to battle, it wasn't just a show of military might, it was a display of divine might. What I mean by that is it wasn't just when two armies would fight, it wasn't just the armies fighting, it was a show of strength of the gods of those armies. You see this early on in 1 Samuel when the Ark of the Covenant comes into the Israelite camp. The, the armies, uh, uh, the people of Israel make this big shout. There's this big ruckus. And the Philistines are terrified. And they're terrified. Why? It says because a God has come into the Israelite camp. See, for David, when he sees Goliath taunting Israel, it's not so much that he's concerned about the political well-being of Israel, for David, it's the glory of God among the nations that is at stake. That's the thing that is propelling David in this story is a passion and a, and a, and, and a, a concern for the glory of God among the nations. And you see this uh, in, in Paul's question. You see it again when Paul's talking to Saul uh, he says, your servant, um, he says, this Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Because he has attacked the very glory of God. Because he has belittled my God. One of the beautiful things that we have about David is not only do we have the story of David, but we also have a, a, a window into the heart of David in the Psalms. And you get a picture of this heart of David that is consumed with the glory of God in Psalms like Psalm 69. We're in Psalm 69, verse 6. It says, May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O Lord, the Lord Almighty. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my, sake, my face. I'm a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumes me. For zeal for your house consumes me. One of the first things we see about David here is that he is a man who is consumed with zeal for the glory of God. And it is this zeal for the glory of God that drives him into action. Another thing that we see about David is that not only does he, is he consumed with, with the glory of God, but he is a man who fully trusts God. That he fully trusts God. 
Because you've got to ask, why does David run out into battle? And, and maybe there's a couple of options. Maybe, uh, maybe he's cocky. But the text doesn't actually give us, his brother says that, but his brother says that in a way that would reveal to us that that's not actually the case. The text doesn't give us any indication that he's cocky. As a matter of fact, David doesn't seem to have any qualms with tending sheep. He doesn't seem to be a prideful, arrogant, cocky young man. Rather, what you find is these early hints that David is a man, that character of God. You see this, dances, trust fully in the character of God. You see this at the very end of our text this morning when David says to Saul, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. I wonder, did David remember also the promises that God has made to Israel throughout the years? Did, God, or did David remember the ways that God had proven himself faithful over and over throughout Israel's history? And now he's even recalling in his own life the ways that God has been faithful to protect and provide and to guide and to guard and do everything that he said he would do. And because of that, when he sees the glory of God at stake among the nations, he fully trusts that God is going to protect and provide. Again, we've got hints uh, and windows into the heart of, God, uh, of David uh, in the Psalms. In Psalms like uh, uh, Psalm 20, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. His anointed. Remember, David was anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. And then Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. So we see in David a young man who is consumed with the glory of God and a young man who fully trusts that God will do what he said he will do. And in a time when Israel is caught in this fear and this trembling and they're waiting for their hero to arise to save them from the Philistines, instead of sending them a warring who has... boy. A shepherd boy who has no reason to believe that he has what it takes to defeat this army, but also no reason to doubt his God. Fast forward several hundred years, and Israel will again find themselves in an identity crisis, replace the Philistines with Rome. And once again, you find a nation who's in fear and trembling, waiting for their Messiah to appear, waiting for their hero to appear. And there are, we have a lot of reason to believe that they're expecting this warring king who's going to come and save them from the political powerhouse of Rome. And once again, just like he did with David, rather than sending them a warring king, he sends them a shepherd, the great shepherd, and like David, this shepherd is one who is consumed 
with zeal for the glory of his Father. You see this in Jesus, as a matter of fact, in, in uh, John's gospel, in John chapter 2, when Jesus goes into the temple and clears the temple, his disciples remember in the Psalms, in Psalm 69, where David says, even foreshadowing Jesus, that, that, that zeal for my father's house consumes me. When you look at Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, this, this prayer that we call the high priestly prayer that reveals so much of the heart of Jesus, he begins it all by saying, Father, the time has come glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. We see that just like in David, Jesus was a man who was consumed with the glory of his heavenly father. And just like David, Jesus was a man who fully trusted that his heavenly father would do what he said he would do. You see this even in Jesus' words on the cross. Jesus' words on the cross Uh, He quotes from David in the Psalms. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. And we read that as uh, a cry of desperation, and indeed it is. But when you keep reading in Psalm 22, it's not just a, a cry of desperation, but more than that, it's a declaration in Jesus' trust in his heavenly Father, that he will save him, that he will rescue him, that he will do what he promised that he would do. And it's said of Jesus the very same thing that was said of David, that he was the Lord's anointed. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And to the end of Jesus' life in the day of Pentecost. And once again, we find an anointing, don't we? We find that, we find another anointing. And in this anointing, rather than anointing a king, the Holy Spirit anoints the church. Anoints the church with the very same spirit that anointed David when Samuel anointed him with oil. The same the spirit of power that came upon David. The same spirit that Jesus operated in. Luke's gospel highlights this very significantly in the beginning of Luke's gospel. That Jesus operated in the same spirit. This anointing of the Holy Spirit. And now the church carries that same anointing of the Holy Spirit. Which forces me to ask maybe some difficult questions. Because today, we are the Lord's anointed. Because of what Jesus did on a cross and then sent his Holy Spirit, that we are now the Lord's anointed. And I think about Israel. Israel, who was meant to represent God. That was their identity, to represent God to the nations, to witness about God to the nations. And then I look at Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1. He says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit who's going to come upon you and it's going to empower you to witness to Jesus, to witness about the glory of God. See, this is still our identity today. Just like Israel's identity was to represent God to the nations, this is still the identity of the church. 
to represent God to the world, which forces me to ask some difficult questions. One of those questions when I read this story is whose servants are we? Whom are we serving? I think about Israel, and they're supposed to be serving the living God, and they become servants of Saul. And because they're servants of Saul, they're living in fear in the midst of impossible circumstances. But God has always brought them into impossible circumstances. In fact, it seems that God loves bringing his people into impossible circumstances so that he can display his glory. And Israel, in the midst of impossible circumstances, rather than trusting in God, whom they're supposed to be serving, they're serving Saul and are caught in fear and trembling. And when I take a look at the church today and believers today, man, I see a lot of fear in the church. I see a lot of believers living in fear. You don't have to look any further than your Facebook feed and the responses to this current political environment that we're in. Man, people are freaked out right now. You see these rants all the time about this political environment that we're in. People just freaked out about what's going to happen. And then looking for our Saul, looking for our Goliath. We're looking for that person that's going to be in the White House to save the day. And it makes me ask, who are we serving? Who are we serving? Do we actually trust God? Do we actually trust that God is in control? That he is going to do what he said he's going to do? And that we have no reason to be afraid? If you're here this morning and you find your life is riddled with fear, I just want to gently ask why. If you find yourself living in fear, again, gently, I just want to ask why. Because God has never given us a reason to fear. Instead, God has always shown us time and time again that he will provide, that he will guide, that he will protect. And it may not be in the ways that we want it to be. It may not be in the ways that we expect it to be. When we're looking for our hero, he may send us a shepherd, but he will do what he said he's going to do that you can absolutely trust God. That if you find fears in your life, when you live in fear, you're you're faced with a couple of options. Do we run it to this world or do we run it to Jesus? And I'm going to tell you, when you run it to Jesus, he will always come through. He will always provide. I've got to ask also, If David was anointed with the Spirit, and by the Spirit he was consumed with zeal for the glory of God, and if Jesus was consumed with glory, with with, uh, zeal for the glory of his heavenly Father, what am I consumed with? What am I, the the church in America right now, and I am not one to poo poo the church, I, I love the church. I believe that the church is God's chosen, a God's chosen vehicle to display his glory among the nations, and I don't think he has a plan B. I love the church, but because I love the church, I I have some concerns about the church right now 
And, and I wonder, are we, as a church, as followers of Jesus, are we consumed with the glory of God? I see a lot of churches that are really consumed with church growth and multiplication and numbers and budgets and size. I even look at the, the, the current state of Christian music and how many worship songs are all about me. It's all about what God does for me. It's all about how God makes me feel. It's all about me, consumed with myself and what God does for me. And I, I'll tell you guys, I get sick to my stomach at some of the quote-unquote worship songs. Who are we worshiping? I spend enough time in a week thinking about myself. I don't need to sing about myself on Sunday mornings. Who are we? What are we? What consumes us? Or when I look at my own life, what, can, what drives me in a day? When I look at and I do an honest assessment and survey of how I spend my time and my resources and the people I surround myself with and in my workplace and in my school, is this what drives me? Is it is a, is a, a driving passion that God would be glorified in my life? And it's, man, it's tricky as I was preparing for this morning, trying to think about what does this even mean? What does this even look like? And it's tricky. It's really tricky because, man, I think there are so few examples today to look to. I honestly think there are so few examples of men or women that are truly consumed with a passion to see God glorified. I think about uh, a friend of mine. He's a pastor down in Middleville. Pastors a small church. No, none of you would know his name. He doesn't have a big following. Uh, he's in his 60s, getting ready for retirement. All of his friends are getting ready to cash in the retirement funds and ride this thing out. They're getting ready to enter into their second childhood and read, ride this thing out. And they're amassing for themselves all this stuff and all this comfort and this safety. And this guy is, he's just like, man, I, I meet with him about once a month. And he's like, Ryan, I just, more than ever, more than ever, I want Jesus to be glorified in my life. More than ever, I want to give everything to Jesus. And him and his wife, rather than amassing more wealth and stuff, they're just giving stuff away and they're selling stuff and they're downsizing and they're simplifying so that God can be more glorified in their life. 65 years old, and I just look at this man and say, I want to be more like this man. In 30 years, I want to have more zeal for the glory of God in my life than I do right now. We talk about, uh, around our ministry, we, we talk often about Tuesday morning Christianity. What's Tuesday morning? It's just Tuesday morning. That's all it is. But man, I want to be so consumed with God's glory in my life that on Tuesday morning I wake up and I say, today, God, would you use me to show your glory to the world around me? I want my life to look like Jesus today. I want my life today on this Tuesday morning to, to count, to represent Jesus to the world. It's easy to come here on a Sunday morning and, and worship and, and say, God, be glorified in our midst. But what about on Tuesday morning? What about on Wednesday afternoon? What about on Thursday night when you're hanging out with your friends? And I want to be a, I, I be a person 
that is, cons- and maybe some of you are here this morning, and, and man, you want that. You want that. You want to be that person, but you look at what that's going to cost, and it's scary. Because indeed, it is costly. It is costly. I can attest to you that it is costly. But again, Jesus said it was going to be costly, didn't he? Didn't he say this thing was going to cost us our very lives? Didn't Jesus say, this is what it's going to mean to follow me. Is it's going to be to take up your cross daily, to die, so that you can experience the full and abundant life. This is what, so clear is Jesus on this that I would, I would venture to say that if, if following Jesus hasn't cost you anything, it may be that you're not actually following Jesus. But Jesus also said, you can trust me. You can trust me. When things look difficult, when things look impossible. See, it's easy to trust Jesus when everything's going well, right? It's easy to trust Jesus when my finances are in order. It's easy to trust Jesus when my retirement account is building. It's easy to trust Jesus when my health is in order and my family's all getting along. But when one of those gets shaken, that's when we have to that's when we really come face to face with do we trust Jesus? And I want to f- say to you, friends, that you can trust Jesus. That you can always trust Jesus. That he is who he said he is and he will do what he said he will do. Let me finish us with this and uh, Will and the band can come up. Just this question of whose servants will we be? What kind of people will we be? Will we be those like Saul and the Israelites that in the day of trial, in the day of difficulty, in impossible circumstances, that we're going to shrink back in fear? We're going to do what we know is safe? Are we going to be like the Philistines who are addicted to comfort and people like David? People that in technology? Or will we be people like David? People that are consumed with the glory of God in our lives at whatever cost. And I just want to encourage you and exhort you to be that kind of people, Crossroads. Let's be this kind of people. Let's be this kind of people that are consumed with the glory of God. That like David, when faced with the wickedness in this world and the difficulties of this world, don't shrink back in fear but that we run out into the battlefield, that we fight for the glory of God in our families, that we fight for the glory of God in our friends, that we fight for the glory of God in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces, and that we fight for the glory of God in the nations. For you are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen people. Those that belong to God so that you might display his glory to the nations around us. 